Today on episode number 203 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Yen H. Jensen shares about his flipped classroom. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak. And this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today, I welcome to the show Yen H. Jensen. He obtained his Ph.D. in theoretical chemistry in 1995 from Iowa State University, working with Mark Gordon, where he continued as a postdoc until he joined the faculty at the University of Iowa in 1997. In 2006, he moved to the University of Copenhagen, where he is now professor of biocomputational chemistry. In addition to his research interests in quantum biochemistry, He's interested in blended learning, receiving the University of Copenhagen Teacher of the Year Award in 2013, open access publishing, and open science. He's an active blogger on molecular modeling basics and proteins and wave functions, active on Twitter, and initiated the overlay journal Computational Chemistry Highlights and the aggregator Computational Chemistry Daily. One of the things that you'll hear Yen share about in this episode is how he creates videos for his classes. And a way that you could do that easily is with the product from today's sponsor for episode 203, and that's Screencast-O-Matic. If you go to screencastomaticcom slash higher ed 50, that link will also be available in the show notes at teachinginhighered.com slash 203 you can learn about their product, which allows you to video whatever's on your screen, including a PowerPoint, as Yen will describe later in the episode. And as we talk about, you can record your face, you can record your slides or some combination of them. It's got easy editing tools and you can receive a 50% discount on an annual membership for the Screencast-O-Matic software slash service. And I hope that you will check them out. And thanks to them for sponsoring today's episode. Yen, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Hello. It is so nice to be connected with you. And I love the two resources that you sent over to me. Thank you for the time you took to write those. One is about your flipped classroom, which is what we'll be talking about today. And then the second one is about active learning. And of course, they interlink so well with each other. You wrote I have taught chemistry courses since 1996, both in the U.S. and at the University of Copenhagen. I used the standard lecture model, always Blackboard, never PowerPoint, until about 2011, when I switched to peer instruction. Talk to me about 2011. (laughs) What happened (laughs) to instigate this change, and what did you find? So actually, I, I had written a book uh, based on some lecture notes. So it's, it's a book about uh, my field. I, I taught a, a course in, in something called computational chemistry. And then I wrote the lecture notes up. And the part of the book was really about how to use visualization 
in, in chemistry. So, so better teaching through visualization. And so I wanted to sort of in, try to include that in my courses to illustrate concepts. And then I really sort of realized that the way I was teaching, there wasn't room for any of that because in the traditional model, I felt that I had to say everything in lecture that they needed to know. And so I was always running over time and, and running behind and things like that. And there just wasn't room for anything new. And so then I sort of, I think I must have Googled alternatives to lecture or something like that. And uh, one of the things I came across was um, uh, Eric Mazur's, uh, one of his videos on YouTube. I can't remember. It's something like in a con uh, Confessions of a Converted Lecture, I think. And that sort of gave me, that, that sounded very interesting. And so, so that sort of got me started on that path. Yesterday, I had someone in our Facebook group respond to an active learning article that I posted. And it's a colleague of mine, actually. So I, it's someone I know well. And he, he wrote very candidly about, you know, I've tried this. He, he teaches history and political science. And he says, I've tried this. And he's teaching classes, probably 50, 55 students, and really just talked about the difficulty that the students have with sharing candidly in an environment like that. And we went back and forth a little bit. I think one of the challenges people have is thinking, well, I tried it and it didn't work. <laughs> so I went back to what seems better or more comfortable. And could you speak a little bit to any experiences you had with that feeling of I tried it, it didn't work, you know, and, and just what that what that transition was like for you, both in a longitudinal phase, but also I imagine every class you teach, there's a little bit of that that goes on. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what really got me sort of, I, I decided to try it, but I decided to try it just on, on one single thing. So there was a topic in, in the course I was teaching. Uh, I wasn't the most exciting topic in the world. I didn't really have a good lecture. I mean, I lectured about it, but it, I, I felt myself it was boring. And so I said, I'll do an experiment. So I will assign those pages from the book. And then I'll ask two clicker questions. And we'll see how that goes. If they, if they get it right, then I sort of know that it worked, that I, that I wouldn't have to lecture about it in the future. And so I tried that and it worked. They, they, both questions were answered with 90% correct. And, and then I just thought, well, you know, there would have been a waste of time lecturing on that. And so maybe there are other things I can, I can replace. So I, so I didn't flip the whole classroom at once, right? I, I, I flipped here and there. And, and the first experiment was a success. I don't know what would have happened if it was a failure, if they hadn't read it or, or, or things like that. But it just, it, just, it just worked right away. And so I, I, I got hooked on that. It's interesting. Your definition of success in this case was students answering the questions correctly because I imagine as you have learned more about how we learn, there now are some, at least for, I know for myself, there are discoveries that I have encountered about actually sometimes the failure will generate more learning. There's a neuroscientist out of UCLA, the University of California, Los Angeles, who I've had a chance to interview on the show before, and he's he uses this phrase, Forgetting is a friend of learning. And I'm laughing because right now I'm, 
I know his name. It's just sometimes when you're you have the pressure of being recorded, you forget people's names that you totally know. It's going to come to me in a moment as soon as I let the pressure off. But anyway, <laughs> uh, forgetting is a friend of learning. He he talks about his in their memory lab there that we have the tighter neural connections when we actually get the answer wrong. Of course, as long as we then get the answer right and we're able to yeah. determine, you know, how how was I wrong? Could you speak a little bit about any value you see in failure on these questions or or you know, getting the the answers incorrect? What have you discovered? Well, actually, so what I try to do now is is ask questions where about half of them get it wrong. Mm. Half of the students. And so that's sort of the perfect question. Uh, every once in a while, I'll I'll try to throw in a, a harder question where most of them get it wrong. But it, it's not they get it wrong because of some, I'm trying to uncover some misconception. You, you want the level of difficulty just just right, where, where, where you know, at least half of them are sort of on the edge of understanding it, but not quite there, and you want to help them that, you want to help them take that extra step. And speaking of forgetting being a friend of learning, that was Robert Bjork, Robert Bjork ah, okay. <laughs> from UCLA for my, my own sake. And of course, now you know, I'll never forget his name again. So, <laughs> right. so now that I have allowed myself that closure, tell me more then, because it seems like if I were to just hear this advice, I would think 50%. You know, why would that be the ideal percentage? Even because you would think that, at least I would think, well, I now know that this percentage of them got it wrong. I want to fix that. So yep. then I'll just make the lecture better, the video better, the the preparation before the class better so that I can get to 100%. Share more about why 50% really works for learning uh, because, to occur. Yeah, because I, I, I use the peer instruction approach, right? So, so now they have to find a neighbor who voted something different, and then they have to discuss why they voted the way they did. And so, and then we'll have a vote, and then usually 80, 90% get it right. So if it's, if it's 50% and in the first shot, then there's a pretty good chance that, they'll, that their neighbor will have the correct answer. And so, yeah, so that's why I sort of try to aim it there. So, so it, it's, you want to, I want to ask questions that are initially confusing and then explained by their peers. So you, you're taking all of this history of all the times that you've taught this class or even just this particular concept previously, and you're aiming toward a peer instruction model that the first poll question or, or whatever type of intervention it is that you might use, that they don't all understand it at first. And there's right. that, that struggle of, I, I got it wrong, I wonder why, I wonder what that was. And then I have a chance to talk to one or two people around me, and I can hear what they came up with, but also the why. Why was the answer? Because multiple choice questions are pretty bad at that by themselves, right? Without the kind of facilitation that you're describing. Yes, yes. The, the why has to sort of be uncovered in conversation, right? So, it, but, but it's just, uh, I mean, yeah, it's usually a misconception or something you, you can uncover by asking the multiple choice question. And, and so I should, I should add that when they get it wrong, I, I, the best kind of question is whether at least two answers that look right, but mm -hmm. only one is, one is right. Right, so it's not that they get it wrong because they had no idea. They actually thought 
they knew what was going on, right? And now they're surprised to learn that there's something there that they've that they've misunderstood. On a past show, I was able to speak to the authors of a book about multiple choice questions, and that's Jay Parks and Don Zamaro. And it was I teased them because I thought I, I never would have thought that a book about multiple choice questions could be as interesting as their <laughs> book was. I, I, I will candidly say I would not have read that book if they weren't coming on the show. And I felt like I should respect, you know, the time they had put into writing. Right. But they spoke so eloquently about distractors, the the answers that are not correct. And one of the things I really learned from it was they didn't say this, but this is my interpretation of my learning is I better spend almost as much time, if not maybe even more time on those distractors mm-hmm. and, and how they facilitate the learning process. I'm not sure if you're able to, but but could you think of a example where a, a type of question that you might ask that, yes, you have the one right answer, but then how you think through a distractor in your discipline? Well, actually, the easiest is is to say there's one of these statements is not correct, mm-hmm. right? Because then you write a bunch of true statements, which is much easier. And so then they're all distractors, right? Because one of them is incorrect, right? But they're mostly reading true statements. So yeah. they have to, I mean, they're constantly distracted, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they, yeah. Also, I often ask questions where they actually don't have all the information they need. And so they actually have to, you know, so realize this and ask me or make some assumption. I'd love to hear more about that. Can you give me an example? Well, yeah, okay. I'm trying to think sort of without getting too too technical. But for example, so so very often in in, in what I teach in, in the, the part of chemistry I teach, temperature is very important. Mm-hmm. And so they really need to know what the temperature is, but it's not given given in the problem. And so they really ought to realize that that's a well, not necessarily a problem, but then you have to assume some temperature. So, the, so there's an assumption, in, an underlying assumption in the, in the answer. I imagine um, that would get all kinds of depth for you for what they were thinking about. Because so much of teaching for me is helping students undo the learning that some of our educational s- systems have shaped in them mm-hmm. that they think... I must memorize these words. Yes. But these words, they don't mean anything to me, but it's not going to really matter. <laughs> just, right. I just can exactly. memorize this set of words and it doesn't matter. But the thing that you're talking about, because I either need to ask you what the temperature is, but I also could make assumptions about the temperature in coming up with my answer. Right. And yet those assumptions I used are informed by something. And to me, that's very intriguing to think about as a teacher. You're helping them to think deeper than just, you know, a memorizing a definition or a formula. Yeah, right. And, and, and another common trick, right, is to include more information than they need, right? That, that'll also make them very nervous because they're, they're used to, again, in these questions in the back of the book, right, you have exactly the amount of information you need and you need to use it all in order to answer the question. And if you haven't used some piece of information, you've missed part of the, the problem, right? Which is, of course, not how it is in, in real life, right? You're bombarded with information and you have to find the most the relevant information. Yeah, but, but you can do that because I'm together with them, right? I would, I would hesitate to do that in an exam problem or something like that, where they're under you know, stress or they can't ask or 
right? But it's okay to confuse them when we're together. <laughs> yes, that, that makes a lot of sense. In my field, I do a case study when we're talking about different formations of businesses. And these are primarily for tax reasons or therefore liability reasons. But the case study that we're answering these multiple choice questions off will be, oh, this person has elderly parents and they need to make sure that they're around them to care for them and, and you know, able to get to medical appointments. This has nothing to do with if you're a corporation, S-Corp or <laughs> LLC, and, and, but yet it does confuse. But it confuses in a good way to think about, you know, sorting through which information is the most relevant and much more akin to the kinds of problems they would need to solve or decisions they would need to make in a different context. Yeah. Describe mm -hmm. for me your flipped classroom. And, and, and in fact, if you, if you care to, you know, share some of the principles around how you design a course to, to maximize the opportunities in a flipped classroom. Yeah. So my typical flipped classroom is they have to watch uh, video lectures that I make before we meet. So we, we typically meet twice a week for two hours each. So they have there's some, some lectures that they have to watch. Then there's a quiz, uh, an online quiz they have to take before uh, we meet, so, that, so the night before. And then when we meet, then, we, then they first have an opportunity to ask me questions about the video. And when they run out of questions, then I have these multiple choice peer instruction questions that we then go through with, with uh, clickers. And when I say clickers, I really mean, you know, like cell phones and, and so, so virtual clickers. What is uh, your goal for the quizzes that the students take before they come to the class in terms of percentage correct, et cetera? Ah, okay. So, th so they have to, they can take the quiz as many times as they want but they have to keep taking it until they get it everything right. Mm. Yeah. And it's it's basically there's there's two purposes. So so one is sort of control for me so they they know that I check whether they've taken the quiz. Uh, so our learning system has a function where you can send out an email to people who have not taken the quiz. So basically it's just to make sure that they come prepared. But also, it, it helps them a little in, in sort of seeing, well, did I really understand the questions? Or the, the, did I understand the, the subject of the video? Because if they can't answer those, those quiz questions, then right, they obviously couldn't, and they really should go back and, and look at them again. Is there anything so, that you do to try to have these quizzes be less transactional than they sometimes can be? In the sense of, there's a temptation, and I think... It's helpful for us all to recognize we would probably feel the same way of, of I of you know let me just game the system let me you know let me take it the first time I, I don't know if it gives feedback as to what the right answer was or let me talk to my friend not and I actually in, in my classes I'm like talk to your friend all you want so that that isn't cheating to me because I, I stress so much that these are here to serve you they're for your learning. So please, mm -hmm. please talk to your friend. In fact, your friend will have different questions served up to him or her because I use a bank, a banking yeah. model ah, of the okay. questions. So, you know, the 10, yes. 10 questions out of 100, your friend probably doesn't have the same questions you do anyway. But I don't consider that cheating. Some do. I know. I realize um, other institutions, other professors do. But do you do, you do anything to try to have it be less, oh, I got to do this before tomorrow and, and help them see how it helps their learning? Yes, I, I don't assign any points to it. 
So, so that's I think that's I actually think that is key. So it, it's it's obligatory, but it's there are no points attached. And so as soon as there are no points attached, then you sort of well, then the only reason to do it other than they know that I'm watching, right, is really for their own for their own sake. Hmm. So yeah. It's it's I should also mention that these quizzes are really easy. I mean, if you it's just really to see if they've done the work or if they've seen the videos. So if they've seen the videos, most of them get everything right, right away. In fact, there's a lot of true false questions and things like that. Mm. So I, I really don't get the, the feeling that any of them just click randomly. Tell me more about these videos. And I know you put a great deal of thought and work into how you design them. Yeah, so actually, so I should say, so so the videos are sort of typical MOOC videos. So I'll, I'll they're usually seven, up to seven subjects. Each video has a subject, and each video is, a, is a, at most 10 minutes long. That sort of goes back to your other question about the course design. The, the reason, actually, I use videos, it's really just because I don't like the way the textbooks are, are put together. So I, I basically design, so this is now after many years, I didn't start doing this, but after some years when I got the opportunity to, uh, or, or in time to redesign the courses, I really sort of start with the, the questions I want them to be able to answer. And then I sort of, so I, so actually I write the homework questions first, right? And then I sort of work my way backwards to, well, you know, so if these are the homework questions they have to solve, then what would my peer instruction questions be? If my peer instruction and homework questions are like this, what should the what should the teaching material be like? And so if you do it that way, at least in my experience, all the textbooks I've seen are pretty useless. They, they, they have things in, the, in, in what I would call the wrong order. They emphasize different things. There's too much. And so I, I really use the videos just, as a quick way of generating teaching material. I think if I had more time, I could equally well, you know, write my own textbook and use that. I don't think there's anything magical about the videos. But if you really have to generate your own teaching material in order to fit the way you want to teach the course, then videos are just the fastest way of, of doing that. One thing that's really surprised me, well, one of many things that's really surprised me about what people search for on my Teaching in Higher Ed website, one you already mentioned, and that's a, a, it's a topic from 2013 or 14. It's from a very long time ago about how to teach boring topics. It's interesting to me that people yeah. really want to do that better such that, I mean, I don't promote that post at all. Uh, I might now that I know it's valuable to people, or at least they search for it. And then yeah. another one is I'm surprised by how difficult it is for people to make videos of themselves. Because I, I would suppose, and I was wrong, but I would suppose that I'm up in front of people so often in a classroom environment, you know, that that does not translate to comfort at being recorded. Could you talk uh, some about how to make it easier both in terms of just the nerves that we feel and, and the time it will take to edit ourselves if we allow that nervousness to take us over, but also just just technically speaking, how do we save time with editing the videos and, and that type of thing? I know you've learned a few tricks of, of the trade. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, so, so first of all, I should say, so my videos are just a, a, a screen recording 
you know, of, of a PowerPoint slide. So I'm not appearing in the videos. And I do that mainly because it makes the editing a nightmare. Mm. Right? Continuity is a lot easier if it's just slides. I will, I will say, by the way, I don't have the study in front of me, but I, I have seen some research that would indicate that it doesn't matter. That this doesn't detract from learning. To no. see the instructor's face is no different in terms of comprehension. So if it makes the editing easier and it doesn't yeah. matter for the learning, then why not? So, so slides I mean, easier. Right. And I can see it in a MOOC where it's totally online, right? Then it's just a disembodied voice. I can see that. But with blended learning where you're meeting them mm -hmm. several times a week anyway, I, I don't think it, it matters at all. Yeah. So the only other, well, the, the main other thing I had to learn basically was that if once you record and listen to it again, you just want to erase it and start over. And so the, the, my best advice is just to listen to it the next day. And the next day, it just sounds a lot better <laughs> Yeah. for some reason. I think it's just you come in with a lot of expectations about what you want to say. And, and a lot of them don't get fulfilled. Uh, you miss things or things like that. But if you listen to it the day after, it's really not that bad. It's certainly not worth re-recording again. So th that was sort of the one thing I had to, I had to learn. It's intriguing to me how much students want our authenticity in these tools as well. I was recording something called a pen cast, which I know you you reference in your materials as well. So I'm drawing while I'm recording my voice. And back then, I used to do it actually on a piece of paper with something called a smart pen. Although today's tablets and today's devices, the, the stylus um, tools are so much better than they used to be that I've now gone completely digital. But back then it was, you know, writing and recording and I sneezed in the middle of one of my <laughs> recordings. But again, today, if I did that, I may want, I mean, I, knowing what I know now, I wouldn't fix it. But if I hadn't learned that, it'd be so easy to edit. Why not take out the sneeze? But back then with the, the tools that I had, I thought, oh, I'm not recording this again. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. they loved it. The next day I saw them and they said, oh, I laughed so hard when you sneezed. Yeah. You know, we, yeah, and, yeah. we can be human it, and disarm them yeah. a little bit. And especially teaching subjects like you do that are difficult cognitively. Why not help with some of these um, just ways to lessen the stress a little bit. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, and the other thing you have to remember is that these people watch, you know, thousands of hours of YouTube with people doing much worse <laughs> things. So, I mean, they're, they're so used to it. I, I don't, and, and I think finally the, the, the thing is just, I mean, one, this, one thing you have to get used to a little bit is just how your own voice sounds and how you speak. But, but you just have to remember that this is, you're not speaking in a special way on videos. This is how you always sound. So this is what people expect. Yeah. So you just have to sort of remove that, that, that ego a little bit. <laughs> and it is interesting too, to think about that. If you aren't used to hearing yourself or seeing yourself, then it does sound very strange. Yes. But, yeah. but that you're so right. That is how other people hear you. <laughs> <laughs> that is how yes. other people see you. And, you know, for podcasting, as long as I have, the voice that I hear is now, it's not so strange to me because I, I listen a lot. I try to always get better at what I'm doing. So I do listen back to old episodes. And, and, and yeah, and it, it, it is something that you can become accustomed to in my experience. Absolutely. Yeah, it doesn't really take that long. Then you're used to it. 
Another big obstacle that people experience is that this really can seem so overwhelming. I mean, I talked about not wanting to erase a sneeze because of the time it would take me. If we extend that to how long it takes just to do this with a course, it's overwhelming. You have wonderful advice for us to move toward a flipped classroom model without it just seeming overwhelming. Could you talk a little bit about how you did it and what you recommend to us? Yes. Yeah, so, so I guess I would say if you're starting a course from scratch, then it, I don't really think it's that much more work to flip it. So, I mean, recording the video in and of itself doesn't really take that long. It takes a long time to make the PowerPoint slides. But if you probably have to do that anyway, if you're starting a new course or you have to make your lecture notes. So if you're, if you're taking over a new course and, you know, you want to use your own teaching material, then flipping it is really not that much extra work. Of course, if you already have a traditional course and you want to flip it, then that's, a, that's basically like starting a new course again. And so then definitely taking it in pieces, in, in small pieces is the best way. So you can do that either by, let's say, introducing a clicker question once a week. So assigning a little bit of the textbook that they have to read themselves and they'll get a clicker question and then you lecture about the rest. Or you can take a week and say, okay, this week we're flipping completely. Right here, I won't lecture. Then you've generated some questions for that week. Next year, you can use two weeks or something like that and just, just slowly flipping it. And I think that, 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 that worked fine. That's how I did it for, for one of my courses, certainly. Some researchers about teaching and learning coined the phrase, times for telling, and I'll put a link in the show notes to the journal article where they shared that. That And it was from a referenced in an episode with Derek Breff, who I thank for introducing me to that. So times for telling would be where you, you, you I mean, talk about a boring subject. Well, <laughs> what, what can you put up front of that topic that helps make it more relevant? Mm-hmm. And... I think of a recent episode about active learning where the professor taught environmental science. And I imagine some aspects of environmental science might be really boring. I apologize to my colleague, but he (laughs) he always puts up front of every class what news stories relate to today's topic. And in that particular one, he shared about Disneyland. This was more than a year ago, but Disneyland had an outbreak of Legionnaire's disease and so he was talking not about the marketing, because I think about the marketing aspect of that for Disneyland, but he's thinking about the science of the vapor, and I'm sure temperature was involved in, in this as well. So times for telling could be another way to make flipping your classroom seem a little bit smaller. And at times for telling could happen before they're in the classroom, or it could even happen maybe in the last five minutes of the class where... I do show a short video or we talk about a news story that then will propel them into that chapter rate reading that might be a little bit dense or a video that might be a little bit dense and the quizzes, but they have that to frame it. I don't know if, yeah. if that rings any bells for you in terms of times for telling. Well, actually, the thing that rings the largest bell is, is the boring stuff, mm. right? Because that is actually why I redid my course and actually ended up making video lectures because you you ask yourself, well, why is the boring stuff there and why is it boring, right? And so usually the boring stuff 
you're teaching the boring stuff because it's in the textbook. And that's the only reason you're teaching it, right? So it, it's sort of the, the common approach, right? Where uh, I have X weeks in the course, I have Y chapters in the book, right? Mm -hmm. And then you sort of do the division. I had a terrible time writing good questions about it. But, but that really begs the question, why is it there? If I can't ask a good question, a meaningful question about the topic, then why do they have to know it? Mm -hmm. Right? I think it says something right there about the topic itself. And so I actually, I didn't get rid of the hard stuff, but I got rid of the boring stuff. But the boring stuff really just turns out to be things that are not really relevant to what they have to, mm -hmm. to learn. Right? So it's, it's, it's there for some reason, but, but the only reason you're telling it is because the author put it in there, right? And so the author put it in there maybe because that was in another textbook that he or she used when they were writing the textbooks, right? But maybe there's no better reason than that. Yeah. So actually, I think that the boring stuff, that's, that's kind of a warning sign that the curriculum needs to be addressed. And I think you can, you can put Band-Aids on it. And I, I know I put Band-Aids on it before I completely flipped, right? But it is a Band-Aid. You have to be aware of that. And, and no amount of teaching evaluation is going gonna, is gonna to heal the wound if you want to keep going with the analogy, right? The wound is always going to be there until you address it. Before we move on to the recommendations segment of the show, would you share about just in time instead of just in case? Ah, yes, because that actually goes right to, to what I'm, yeah. I was talking about with the boring stuff. So a, a, a lot of boring stuff is the just-in-case. The only reason I'm telling you this is because you'll need to use it later. And that later will be super interesting. But right now, <laughs> you, know, you know, just cling to the fact that it, just trust me that it'll be super fun in a couple of weeks. Right now it's boring because you need to know this in order to answer that. Well, just in time, you, you start with the exciting stuff. This is important. This is super important. Now, can you answer this? If you can't answer this, why? Well, that's because you need to know something. So, so you just, you motivate it immediately. And so, well, that basically allows you to see what is actually boring, meaning it's irrelevant to the question that you want to, the, the important or the fun question that you want to talk about. Or maybe it's not so boring if you if you really see what the what the context is. I mean, that was really I think this approach was really pioneered in medical schools with case studies, mm -hmm. right? So it's in, so instead of memorizing the names of all the bones in the body, right? They say, well, here's a patient, here are the symptoms. What's wrong with this person, right? I think that's you you if the bone is broken, you probably have to learn the name sooner or later of that bone, right? But now it's it's the same information, but it's put in context because you have to use it just in time. My first job out of college was teaching computer classes. And this was many moons ago <laughs> when uh, we were just coming out of WordStar. <laughs> I didn't ever uh -huh. teach WordStar, but th a very old model of teaching where the students would be in a classroom for eight hours. And, and I actually at one time taught six different levels of Microsoft Excel eight-hour uh -huh. classes. So I knew, I knew every menu item that Excel had, <laughs> which <laughs> well, at the time, individuals only used 2% of what these tools were capable of doing. And I imagine today, who knows what's happened since then, because they could do so much. But one of the things I, I early on learned about teaching was anytime I said, 
Well, we'll talk about that later. Mm-hmm. I tried to never say those words. I still do now. I try to never say those words because if I have to say those words, then that means my sequencing is off. Right. Now, I, I'm not saying I never do say that, but every time I do, I cringe a little because I think, oh, that, that means your sequencing is off. I yes. should get to it just in time. And the other thing that I hear you talking about is you've enveloped my attention in solving puzzles. There's a mystery. There's a question. There's a, a problem to be explored. Mm-hmm. And then I become interested in what I need to do that. And then I'm open to hearing more about the information you're going to present. And if it is really more of a thing of, you know, long years from now, this will help you. Well, years from now, I'm not going to remember it anyway. <laughs> so then exactly. we, we truly can take it out of the textbook or out of the exercise or the video. Yes. <laughs> and we actually have, I mean, many curricula built up where, where it's, it's literally, you have to take this course because you have to use it next year. I mean, it's, it's, and that's the only reason you're learning this stuff now is because next year you'll use it. It's, it's completely useless, right? You're completely forgotten. Yeah, our minds something don't that, work that way. Something that I mean, it's like it's like saying I'm I'm going to Brazil in two years. I'm going to learn Portuguese for the next six months. I mean, it makes it makes no sense. <laughs> Absolutely, this is the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations. And I have been actually working on the teaching in higher ed website. Recently, got a redesign, and so I am going back into all the recommendations that people have made on the first 200 episodes of the show. And there's now a page that people can go to to click on to get their recommendations and explore what books have been recommended previously, what ideas people have shared or other people that they've recommended that we look to to help us be better in our teaching or even just poets and and interesting reads. So I wanted to recommend some utilities. I was going through my iPhone. Sometimes I do that when I'm trying to think of a recommendation. And there's a, a few that I've had some delights with uh, over. The first is what the font, <laughs> what the font <laughs> allows you to use the camera on your phone through this app to tell what a particular font is. And in the Teach It in Higher Ed website redesign, I, I will say I'm very fond of the new fonts that are up there. So if you wanted to know what they were, you could use this app and point at it and find out what the font was that I, that I decided on. I should say my designer just recommended for the website. And then there are two that I just haven't had a chance to see which one I like better, but they're, they're just amazing to me. They both are digital or I don't even know how to describe it, uh, tape measures. <laughs> so I take my phone with this app. One is called Air Measure and the other one is called Tap Measure. And we have thought about, we have a little retreat in our master bedroom, and we've thought about making a second podcasting studio, because believe it or not, my husband and I often will have conflicts <laughs> over trying to podcast in the same place, and we thought maybe we would do the equipment. So I wanted to know how we might go about doing that in that room. And I can just hold my phone up and tap in the corner of the room, and then tap in the corner, and then tap in the corner, and so on, and have a floor plan of the room. And I have not tested it for its precise accuracy yet. So I can't speak to that. But I'm just marveling at the fact that this is even possible with our phones. I mean, you can measure something without a measuring tape. But I mean, it looks pretty accurate to me. But again, I have not literally gone with the tape measure and seen if it was 100% accurate. But those are fun to play with a little bit. And I'll have links to those in the show notes and also on the new recommendations page. And Yen, let me pass it over to you to share what you would like to recommend. 
Well, actually, so it, it's, it's a book called Make It Stick, The Science of Successful Learning. Uh, and so it's, it's written by, by three people. So one is, well, at least one of them, I can't remember which, has done a lot of actual research in learning, so cognitive uh, studies and things like that. And, and in the past, I've tried to read those too, but they've been awfully dry and full of jargon, and I can't really make any sense of it. But this person teamed up with a storyteller. So, so basically someone who sort of made up stories or scenarios that illustrated some of these things that, that cognitive science has found out about effective teaching. So it's presented in a really, sort of in a really useful way. So it's, it's a book that I've, I've bought many copies of and, and given to my colleagues here in, in, in the department who I thought would actually take the time to read it. So I can, I can really recommend it. It's very, it's very practical, but I think it, it really showcases some of the most important findings in cognitive science that's been applied to teaching. And it's really a shame that we don't take advantage of these research results, right? So I'm in a research institution, always read the latest papers, and you always try to incorporate those into your research. We really should do the same with our teaching. But, but I do understand that it, it's, 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 it's hard for a person, it's hard for me to pick up a, a, a journal article in, a, a, you know, in, in cognitive neuroscience or something like that, and then apply it to my teaching. But I think these, these, uh, these authors, this author team has done an admirable job of, uh, job of, of sort of condensing and translating it. The other thing that I like about how they've approached the book and just how you approach your sharing about your teaching methods is that this applies to all of us. It's not like we're teaching, you know, these underlings <laughs> or so different than us. We have to, you know, do that in a condescending way. This is how people learn. This yeah, is, And exactly. so we can learn about ourselves too and how we learn and just continue to facilitate our own lifelong learning. I like that part as well because, I mean, it's, it's centered around the subtitle is The Science of Successful Learning. And we all can benefit from that to become better teachers and also to become better learners. Absolutely. I am so pleased to have been connected with you and thank you so much for coming on the show today and also for all the resources that people will be able to go to in the show notes, which will be at teachinginhighered.com slash 207 to explore even more how to be successful at facilitating learning in their classes. I really appreciated meeting you and getting to learn from you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. It's been great talking to Yen H. Jensen about the way he flips his classroom. Thank you so much for your time and for your expertise on today's episode. And thanks to all of you for listening. If this is your first time listening to the show, or maybe you've been listening for a while, but have yet to subscribe to the weekly update, you can receive the show notes with the links to all the things that we talked about in your inbox, along with an article about productivity or teaching that I write. You can subscribe at teachinginhighered.com. There's a subscribe box right on the homepage. Or if you want to skip straight to subscribe, you can go to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.